as they go. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. We'll begin reading together in verse 1. And you were dead in in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly walked in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, And of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. So that in the ages to come, he might show and display the riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So that we would walk in them. How important is your identity in Christ? How important is an accurate understanding of who you are. By the grace of God and by the power of God in Jesus. I think we could observe this. that, That many of us as Christians often struggle in a realm called defeats. Because we often lack a clear understanding of who we are. We, try, we strive to become something or someone rather than knowing and resting in who we are in Christ. Many of us allow ourselves to be defined by things that has, have happened to us in the past as children or as adults. A key theme in the New Testament is, the, is bound up in two words. The words in Christ. Now, there's two ways that Christians are described in the New Testament that relates to the name of Christ. One is the word Christian. All right? How many of you have an idea how, of how often the label Christian is used in the New Testament? We want to take a guess. Go, be brave. Okay? A thousand times, all right. What do you think? Okay? It's, it's used three times in the New Testament. Okay, now, what's true about the label Christian? Well, the label Christian can kind of be divisive, right? It can be, well, they're Christians and they're not. Okay, kind of a line drawn in the sand. So the the label in and of itself isn't real helpful, and I think it's why in the New Testament it's not used very often. But what is the way that God describes believers in the New Testament? He calls them saints is one way that he describes them. Okay, but, but a way that he defines the realm in which we are brought into in Christ is the idea is the phrase in Christ. And that, that theme or that thought of being in Christ speaks to the identity of believers. 
So if you read through the New Testament, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find over 200 times the Bible speaks of Christians as people who are in Christ or with Christ. Okay, so our, our essential identity is not found in a label that we are Christians. It's found in a realm in which we have been placed by the power of God. We, in salvation, in placing faith and trust in Christ, are moved into a new realm. We are in Christ. So it's a key theme that talks about our union and our relationship with Jesus in and by salvation. This is the clear focus of the New Testament as it talks about us as believers. We are people that are bound up in a new life, in a new relationship with Christ. One writer speaks about it this way. And, and he speaks about it in the context of promoting a clear and liberating understanding of who we are in Christ. Challenging us. Get who you are. You are not what's been done to you. You are what Jesus has done for you. You aren't what you do. You are what Jesus has done. What you do doesn't determine who you are. Rather, who you are in Christ determines what you do. Okay, so what's the focus? The focus of the New Testament is this. Who you are internally determines who you, who, what you do in your life. Jesus said this. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. In Proverbs 4, in verse 24, Solomon, writing to his son, says this. Guard your heart with all diligence. Why? Life springs from it. Okay? Our identity in Christ determines who we are and what we do. Now, is it true that many of us tend to be defined by what's been done to us based upon past struggles, abuses, disappointments, experiences, enslavements, bondages, addictions, things that we've dealt with? The answer is that yes, many people tend to define themselves by the things that they have accomplished or by the things that have been done to them. All right, what is the New Testament putting the emphasis on? The New Testament is putting the emphasis on what Christ has done for you and what Christ has done for you changes how you behave and what you do. So it's critical that we as Christians gain a clear understanding of who we are in relationship to this phrase, this theme, in Christ. And so for the next few weeks, I want to just spend a little bit of time in a short series looking at what it means to be in Christ. I will not be able to exhaust all 200 plus statements about being in Christ. But what I want to do is give you a summary, just a brief snapshot of what this new relationship is so that we become people who move away from defeat and struggle and past afflictions to become new people in Christ who live out their Christian experience in the realm of this glorious and powerful relationship with Jesus in hopes that a clearer understanding of who we are in Christ might bring us to a place of newfound freedom in the realm of Jesus. Now, the text that I just read to you moves from a very dark valley to very glorious heights. Okay, there's no way you can read, you can read the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 without having a cloud of pessimism come over you. Okay, but as you continue on in the paragraph, what do you find? You find that you move from pessimism and despair to a place of hope and victory. 
Because that's what happens when we come into this personal relationship with Christ and we begin to grasp and understand what it is to be in Christ. You will find that something wells up in your heart. What wells up in your heart is the hope that you can be different. Is that because of this relationship that I have with Christ affecting and changing me, my life can be different. I'm not a slave to my past. I'm not a slave to the things that have happened to me. I'm not a slave to past things that have bound me. I am free in Christ. And so I want us to spend our time this morning just kind of walking through this passage of Scripture, focusing first on the bad news, and then moving on to a focus on the good news. So first of all, what is our identity before Christ comes into our life? And verses 1 to 3 are going to help us to understand this. And I want to I use an analogy here because... I think as you read through verses 1 to 3, you can think that the description is very negative and very dark, and and it makes you feel bad. But here's the the analogy I want to share with you, okay? I think the reason that, that the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write a text that is so clear in its focus is so that we would understand our true nature, okay? The desperate nature of our situation so that we wouldn't seek weak solutions to our sin. See, that's a tendency that we have. If we minimize sinfulness, what do we do? We de facto minimize the value and glory of the cross of Christ. So what Paul does is he spends a couple of verses talking about the darkness and depths of human depravity so that we realize how deep and dark our situation is and we are called by the gospel to a glorious and great solution and resolution in Christ. Okay, so a good medical doctor knows this. If you don't shock people with the truth, they will never change their behavior. Okay, so a good medical doctor is a truth teller, right? They tell you the truth in strong enough terms that you change your behavior so that you can move to health, all right? And I don't want to go to a medical doctor who's afraid to tell me the truth because the truth is the means by which we move towards freedom physically, And the truth is the means by which we move from darkness and bondage before Christ into a new relationship with Him where we begin to experience a glorious victory. So as you understand the first three verses, you will seek a powerful solution in the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 1 says this about our past condition, our identity before the intervention of Christ. Here's what it says. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Okay, so the first description of our situation prior to the sovereign intervention of God's grace is this. We were dead. The idea of this this, uh, word arrives from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. God says to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? Die. Okay, now, Adam and Eve went on living after eating the fruit from the tree, right? But their relationship with God was shattered by sin. And that's the idea of death here means to be spiritually separated from God and then ultimately leads to a physical death and a permanent separation from God. Okay, so there's a progression in this understanding of death. It works spiritually that we are separated from, not alive to what God is seeking to do. And that is a result of two things. It says in this verse, it says, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Okay, so what are trespasses? 
Okay, trespasses are when the sign says, do not walk on the grass. All right? What does it make you want to do? Makes you want to walk on the grass, right? Okay, so what is a trespass? Trespass is to violate a, an established standard or norm, a commandment of God, one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, now, people violate the commandments of God sometimes knowingly and sometimes without knowing because that's the nature of being dead in sin. Okay, so this, this, this trespass idea can be an act of rebellion against God or it can be an act of ignorance in sinfulness that I was unaware of until the gospel and the truth of God's word came into my life. So the idea of trespasses is one way in which we were dead in sin. Also, the, the idea of the second word, sin, is to miss the mark and to fall short. Okay, It describes our inability to achieve the standard that God's word establishes. Okay, It is a failure on our part to measure up. So for both of those reasons, we are dead. Now, I want to just give you this very simple definition of death. To be dead means to be, for ultimately and finally, unresponsive. Okay, to be dead is to be unable to do things. Okay? So we don't call out to corpses. Right? You don't, you don't pray reveille in Arlington National Cemetery. Why? Because dead people cannot respond. Okay, so the, just the, the first thought is that before Jesus, we were dead in relationship to righteousness. Dead in, in lacking a desire to please God. And that condition is universal without Jesus. Secondly, verses 2 and 3. It says, in this, trespasses and sins, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, of the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. So, before Christ, what, what is our condition? We are dead in our trespasses and sin. Secondly, we are captive or enslaved to sinful patterns. Now, as Paul deals with this, he talks about our sin in relationship to the world, our sin in relationship to the devil, and our sin in relationship to the flesh. So he's going to point in three different directions to find and, and to help us to understand the source of how deep our captivity and enslavement in sin is. When he talks about the world in verse 2, he says, In this you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And the idea of the world simply is this. It is the present age in which we live bent away from seeking righteousness. Okay? It means to be captive to the ever-changing morality and value system of the present world. All right? And we live in a world that continues to bend the rules, to bend absolutes, or to clearly move away from them. Okay? And that, that world that we live in does what? It pressures us to conform. Okay? It's why many times as Christians... Especially for young people. You have a hard time standing for biblical truth. Why? You feel a pressure to conform to the system of the world around you. To conform to the norms that are present in the world around you. Before Jesus, what did we do? We constantly adapted to the world's morality. When the world shifted, we shifted. Sometimes we were prompting the shift. Okay, but the idea is that there is an enslavement that we are bound into the world's system. Paul also points in the direction of our being affected by the prince and power of the air. Now, what is Paul talking about? Paul's talking about a personal 
evil one known as the devil or Satan. Okay, now we live in an age in which it's what? It's unfashionable to talk about Satan. Satan is seen as someone who runs around in a suit with a long tail and a pitchfork in his hand. That's not how Paul understands Satan's activity. Paul understands Satan's activity as a real, viable, powerful force that seeks to hold you in slavery to sin and darkness. And apart from Jesus, that is our stated identity. Jesus called him the prince of this world. Paul sees him as dominating and directing in the lives of people that don't know Christ. That's the simple condition apart from Jesus. And then Paul also touches base on the theme of the flesh. He says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So we are captive and enslaved from three angles. The world around us calls out to us. Satan seems, seeks to influence and exercise authority over our lives. And then we live in this body. This body that has appetites that aren't always pretty, that aren't always pleasing to God. And so the idea that Paul gives is that we, before Jesus, were indulging in the desires and the cravings. We live by the world's mantra. If it feels good, if it brings you joy, if it brings you happiness, you can pursue that so long as you don't hurt anyone else, which I think is the lie of the evil one. All sin affects us and others. Indulging in the cravings. Indulging in the desires. Which is to say what? It's to say this. No part of our humanity, of our being, is unaffected by sin. It per, before Jesus, what does it do? It permeates our lives. It holds us captive. It determines what we do and how we live. And it brings into our lives a serious degree of destruction. And it is not until we see the truth about ourselves in Jesus Christ that we can experience true and lasting change. Now, the last thing that Paul says about us prior to Christ is this. End of verse 3. He says, We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, what is nature? Nature is a condition determined by birth. Okay? My, I have a human nature. Why? Because I have human parents. I come from human offspring. Okay, so this... This, he says, we were by nature children of wrath. So in my birth, what was I? Well, Psalm 51, David says this. He says, behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I came from sinful parents, and in my life I manifest a sinful tendency. All right, that's my nature. My parents didn't have to teach me to rebel. They didn't have to teach me as a little child to say no and mine. Okay, that was a naturally occurring. It was by nature. It's the direction I naturally moved. Okay, by nature, Paul says we were objects of God's wrath. We were under the just-deserved judgment of God. Why? Because Romans 6.23 says this. It says the wages of sin is death. Okay, what are wages? Wages are something that, that, something that is earned. Okay, 
It's not something that's given to you as a gift. It is given to you as a result of your behavior, of your activity, and of your efforts. So what, what is our status prior to Christ? We are dead. That is, we're not awake to truth. We are enslaved by sin. And we are under the just deserved wrath of God. Now, what happens? What happens is this. Before Christ, we tend to minimize the holiness of God and our sinfulness. And the result is what? We seek weak solutions to our problem. Okay? Because when, when, you, when you talk to people without Christ and you fail to give them a clear picture of their rebellion, of their sinfulness apart from God, they don't see their need for such a glorious Savior. So what do we need to do? Okay? First, we need to remember who we were before Jesus. We need to have the courage to proclaim to people the truth about who they are so that they will really understand that they need a radical and glorious Savior. And when we minimize sin, what do we do? We minimize the value of the work of Christ on the cross. When we talk truthfully about sinfulness, what do we do? We exalt the glory of Christ because what are we saying? That He has the capacity in the gospel to deliver you from this dark degradation and sin. So our, our, our true status before Christ is that we are broken in sin. We are enslaved in sin. We deserve the wrath of God. And we live in a world that has differing views of humanity. All right? Some view humanity as doing very well. Not really in need of help. Everything's moving along quite fine. Some view humanity as sick. Okay? And what they mean is this. There's, there, there's a troubling amongst humanity there are struggles amongst humanity but with a little bit of assistance they can do better right i would say that that's probably the majority opinion of the world that we live in most people are honest about the fact that we live in a world that has struggles that has brokenness but the biblical view of man is what not that man is well not that man is sick but that man is what dead in trespasses and sin now see, when people realize that, what happens? God awakens in them an understanding that salvation will not come by human effort. That finding a new identity, a rescued identity, a transformed identity will not come as a result of human effort, of trying harder, of spiritual and religious performance. And we live in a world that's going in all kinds of directions trying to find what? Trying to find meaning. Trying to find purpose. Trying to find identity. Uh, Trying to find self-esteem, right? The truth is that we can't find that apart from Jesus Christ. And I, I think the reason that Paul spends three verses in this kind of pessimistic, dark and gloomy aspect of who we were is so that we would never forget who we were before Jesus Christ entered into our life. And that in remembering what we were, it would prompt in us a deep gratitude for the gospel. And that as we share it with people around us, we would have courage to speak the truth to people so that they would begin to seek the right resolution to the depth and darkness of their problems without Jesus. Now, in verse 3, Paul points to something that I think is very fascinating. He does it two times. He says, among them too... We all formerly lived. 
And then second half of verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, what is Paul doing in verse 3? I think what Paul's doing is identifying with the audience that he's speaking to. Okay, and as you read through this passage of Scripture, what does it do? It reminds you of who you are before Christ came into your life. And folks, I think it is, it is critical at many levels that we have a healthy understanding of what we were before Christ came and changed us. All right, so that what? So that we never become proud. We never become arrogant. We never see ourselves as better than other people. No, why, why is our eternal destiny different? It's the grace of God. And so as Paul talks about this, what is he saying? Remember what you were. We all lived like that. Paul could remember his former state. He could remember when he lived in rebellion against God, seeking his own way, seeking his own relevance, his own importance, his own identity. Paul knew what it was to do that. But in verse 4, you hit this kind of dramatic word. Uh, if, if verse 3 hints at hope because it speaks of transformed people, then verse 4 does this. It thunders hope for hurting, guilt-ridden hearts. This verse introduces the intervention of God on behalf of humanity to rescue them from sin and degradation. Verse 40 says this, but God, and, and what do we all say? We say, say, finally, okay? We move from this pessimism and darkness and an accurate understanding of who we are before Christ, but it's about to move into a brighter and brightening, if you will, glorious truth and discussion of the gospel. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. When we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. So what is our identity as Christians owing to? Okay, and here's what you're going to notice. As you move through verses 4 through 10, it, it is a text that is full of what I'm going to call divine passives. Okay, they're passive verbs. They're verbs that talk about what God has done on behalf of or for the benefit of other people. Okay, this text is not an exaltation of how great Christians are. It's not an exaltation about how wonderful our lives are. This text is an exaltation of the glorious grace of, God's, of God. All right, that amazing grace that transforms, that changes, and that sets free. Our identity is owing to the sovereign intervention of a God who unites us to His glorious Son, Jesus Christ. The identity that we then have is not a result of our effort. It's not a result of reformation. It's not a result of performance. What is it? It is all owing to the divine passives that are listed in this text. It is all owing to what God has done for us, which will not in the end make us proud, but in the end it will make us very joyful, and very humble people. We live in a world of people who avoid Christianity. I think sometimes, and you have to ask yourself the question, why is it that many people avoid Christianity? Okay, I, I've had opportunities along the way to share the gospel with people. And often people will say to me something like this, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. Or I can't live up to that standard. I can't live that kind of life. Folks, what I want you to understand this morning is none of us can. 
Right? And, and, and when you share the gospel with people, make sure that you put the emphasis on the divine passives, on the actions of God on behalf of rebels, because that's what the gospel is. God seeking to rescue that which is lost. He comes doing that. We don't seek him. He seeks us. That's the, what Jesus says in John chapter 16. He is a seeking savior. Jesus could summarize his earthly ministry in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. What do you find? God coming, God acting, God seeking, God redeeming, God ransoming, God saving. Right? That's the thrust of Scripture. So let's move into this text for a few minutes and look at what it is that God has done for us. How does, he, how does he define us? What is a Christian? There are many other things we could say from the New Testament. Okay? But in these verses, we unpack just a few things that we can say are true about every believer. Verse 5 says this. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. And just get back to the idea of dead. What is dead? Dead is unresponsive. Dead is unable. Uh, just this, a, a whole realm of ideas. When we were dead in our transgressions, in our rebellion and missteps, what did God do? He made us alive together with Christ. And raised us up with Him. Now I'm going to come back to the by grace you're saved in just a few minutes. Okay? He made us alive and He raised us up with Him. Now, this is clearly terminology that talks about the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Okay, what did God do in the gospel? In the gospel, as you became aware of your sin and God drew you to a place of repentance, what is he doing? He is changing your heart, changing your mind about who he is. He is bringing you to life. The idea that we use theologically is he regenerates us. We move from death to life. That move from death to life is nothing short of the miraculous. It is the radical work of God that is first expressed in bringing Jesus Christ from the dead and that that resurrection power of God in raising Christ from the dead is translated into our experience by grace through faith. And what does he do? He wakes us up. He spiritually brings us to life. He recreates us. This is why when we talk about salvation, okay, and this is why any hint of self-help in the gospel is flawed. Or it's not an accurate, under, accurate understanding of the true gospel. Why? Because the true gospel is all about God. He regenerates us. He makes us alive. He raises us. So if, if in your heart you have a love for God and a love for Christ... Why do you have that? If you think you have it because you chose it, you don't understand your true condition apart from Christ. Folks, here's what happened. When, when, when God began to work in your heart and make the gospel true to you by the power of the Spirit of God, what is He doing? He's awakening you. It's just like in the Gospels, right? That, remember the little girl Talitha that, that was sick? And Jesus comes in and He says to her, Honey, get up. Right, she's dead. What does he do? He calls her to life. And what does he have to do also? He has to en enable her to become alive. 
That's what the gospel is. And that's why those pictures through the gospels of the resurrection power of Christ being poured out on individuals is amazing. In John chapter 11, what did Jesus do? He screamed at a corpse. Now folks, either that is the, the absolute depth of folly or it is the greatest demonstration of the power of God. Lazarus, come forth. Child, honey, get up. What is he doing? He's calling those two individuals to do something that they are unable to do. That's what it means to be dead. And in the gospel, what does God do? God kills any idea of self-help and he moves into the life of individuals to bring saving grace and saving faith. That's the power of the gospel. Folks, please understand this. When God saved you, he made you alive. He gave you the gift of life. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He says this, he says, well, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one certainly could do the things you're doing unless God is with him. What is Nicodemus? He's a religious man, right? What is Nicodemus about? Nicodemus is about self-help. He's about religion. What is he wondering? What does he have to do to have a right relationship with God? What does Jesus say to him? He shocks him. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus' response. Excuse me? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he? And I think this is, he's, he's, he's going to ask a question, but he's really telling Jesus something. Can he enter into his mother's womb and be born? Now, what is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you need to be regenerated. You need to be changed. You need to have your heart awakened by the power of the Spirit of God so that you can trust in and believe in the gospel of Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and we were unresponsive to the call of the grace of God. He made us alive. Radical terminology that talks about the radical work of God. Jesus says, Nicodemus, I say to you, you must be born again. Give up your religion. Give up your performance. Hope is found in being united to Christ in his resurrection. He is the one who regenerates us. Verse 6. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now folks, what is that? What does it mean to be raised with Christ and seated with Him in heavenly places? What does it mean? Well, the idea is this. After Jesus Christ had, had gone through his passion, had died on the cross, paid the price for our sin, and was raised from the dead, what happened? He ascended back to the Father and sits at the right hand. What is the right hand? The right hand is the place of approval and power and authority. In Christ, what has God done for us? He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, which is to say what? The place that Jesus Christ occupies is ours because he is our brother, according to the book of Hebrews. We are joint heirs with him. And the glory of that position that Jesus Christ is, is, is enjoying today is what? It is our hope and confidence. 
We are raised by Him, but we are also seated with Him in the heavenly places. Speaking of what? Speaking of a victory that is to be enjoyed, not achieved. Because we are saved by Jesus, not by what we do for Jesus. And the victory that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross becomes what? Becomes our victory. And so we are gloriously seated at His right hand. Verse 7. It says, God did this so that in the ages to come, he might display his grace and kindness towards us in and through and by Jesus. God's motive in the gospel, God's purpose in rescuing sinners from rebellion, changing them and giving them this glorious gospel of grace. What is God's purpose? God's purpose is to create for eternity. Trophies that speak of the grace of God. Who are the trophies? The trophies are you and I. What do we do? We display the manifold power of God. We display the forgiving grace of God in Christ. Who has raised us and has seated us. So that he now and forever. May display the power of his grace. What does this mean? Here's what it means. No one is too far gone. In sin for God to rescue. His grace can reach to the deepest depth of sinfulness. And bring rescue. And bring salvation. Our significance in Christ. Our identity in Christ. Is found in God's design. In God's plan. He rescues us from sin. He washes us clean by the blood of his son. And we become representations. We become proclamations of what God has done and what God has accomplished in our lives. We are precious to God in this sense. And we are amazing displays of His amazing grace. What else does God do for us? And I think this next statement is central to the book or to this, uh, this paragraph. In verse 5, he says, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not the result of works, of self-help, of performance, so that no one can boast. In the gospel, what has God done? God has rescued or saved us. So he is the God who regenerates us. He is the God who seats us with Christ in heavenly places. He is the God who displays his grace and kindness to us in Christ. And he saves us. Folks, that is our new identity in Christ. We are rescued from, delivered from, the bondage and the affliction and slavery of sin. He saved us. This idea of saving is shorthand for the gospel. It's the picture of rescue. I like to think, when I think of, uh, of this idea, I like to think of the illustration of a lifeguard. Okay, with a lifeguard, what do you have? You have an individual in danger, and you have one who comes and rescues. Okay, in the gospel, what is the purpose and work of Christ? He comes to rescue from imminent danger. All right, that's what a lifeguard does in their task, in their training. They're trained to rescue people from impending death. And that is what Jesus Christ in the gospel does for everyone who believes. Now, I just want to focus your attention on the word saved. For by grace you have been saved. 
Saved means to be delivered from danger. It is to receive the exact opposite of what I deserve. In my sinfulness, what do I deserve? I deserve the judgment of God. In the gospel of grace, what do I receive? I receive deliverance from that judgment. How? Because Jesus Christ came, stood in my place on Calvary's cross, and bore the wrath of God that verse 3 tells me I deserve so that I could be forgiven. Right? That is the glory of the gospel, that he comes to deliver us from danger by giving himself as a ransom for many. Now, the verb tense here is important because when we talk about our salvation, we often talk about when we were saved, meaning we're talking about event, an event that took place somewhere in the past. Okay, So we tend to think of our salvation as what? As something that is past tense. This verb is fascinating. In the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. Okay, What does it put the focus on? It talks about a past event. He saved us. But it talks about the present consequence of that salvation. Right? The, the present effect of the presence of Christ in our lives. But it also goes further. It talks about the future consequence of the gospel. Okay, We don't even have a way to put this in English because we don't have a verb that functions like this. But the Greek language has that. In the past, God did something. What he did has an abiding consequence today, and it has a, an eternal consequence in our lives. That's how glorious and full our salvation is. It affected us in the past, it is affecting us in the present, and it affects our future. That's why, the, why in this text, Paul could say, he has seated you with Christ into heavenly places. That is your position. Live out of that position. Don't live in defeat. Don't see yourself as a victim. Don't see yourself as a sinner. See yourself as a victor in Christ. He has already seated you there. So I don't have to be a slave to sin. I don't have to be bound in, in, in despair and in discouragement. He in the gospel has set us free. And I love the way that Paul then says this. He says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. The rescue that we experience in Jesus is completely owing to the work, power, and grace of God in Christ. End of story. Okay, what does that mean? It means when we get to heaven, I'm not going to walk up to Ryan Duvenek, who's been married a year now. Congratulations, by the way. I'm not going to walk up to Ryan Duvenek and say, hey, Ryan, what did you do to get here? Okay, I'm not going to say to John, hey, John, what did it? How did you get here? Because what will be true for all of us? For every person in heaven, we will all be there by the same grace of God that was displayed on the cross of Christ. And folks, what does God want you to do? And why, does Paul, why is Paul writing and describing the gospel to people who have already been converted? You know why? We tend to forget who we are in Christ. And we tend to get bound up in discouragement. We tend to get bound up in enslavement. We tend to get bound up in sin. What does Paul want us to remember under the inspiration of the Spirit of God? God changed you. And that change is not owing to your work. It's owing to what Christ has done. So live out the victory that God has given you. Live in the joy that God has given you. Enjoy the forgiveness that God has given you. Don't try to earn His favor by performance. Receive it as a gift over and over and over again. 
rehearse and remember what Christ has done for you. Verse 10 is the last picture of our identity. And I love the way this is stated. It says, we are his workmanship, created, and here's the key, in Christ. This is the fourth time from verse 5 that the phrase in or with Christ is being used. All right, the focus of this text is on what? It is on what we become in terms of our identity as a result of the work of God in the gospel through Christ in the lives of rebels. He changes us so utterly and dramatically that our outlook on life should be different. This, te- this verse, verse 10, says that He is the God who transforms us or who recreates us and makes us new. We are His workmanship. We are, the idea here is we are His work of art. We are His projects. He is committed to your completion in Christ. That's your identity. You have a Father who will not disappoint you, who will not treat you harshly, but who is devoted to your success in life. Let that truth encourage your heart. He has created you in Christ for good works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. What does that mean? It means that the most menial task that you and I can involve ourselves in can be done for the glory of God. Whether it's taking care of chores around the house, going off to work, going on vacation, working in your yard, whatever it is, it can all be done for the glory of God. Nothing is without meaning. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived for 30 years for the glory of God. What did He do? And what the Bible says? It says He was a carpenter. And He was a son to a mother and father. And everything He did was for the glory of God. In the gospel, what does God do? God saves us from this bondage from verse 2 talks about we formerly walked according to the course of this world. Verse 10, the end of it says what? He prepared these things beforehand so that we would walk in them. And here's the contrast. And this is where this text goes. Before Jesus, what was my identity? My identity was that I lived in sin, was enslaved to sin, was bound to the course of this world. In the gospel, what happens? In Christ, I am recreated. I am made new. I am given a new identity so that I can walk in a newness of life for the glory and honor of God. And folks, what does God want us to know this morning? He wants us to know that we are new creations in Christ that we are utterly and completely forgiven, that we are seated with Him in the heavenly places, that He has recreated us to make all of life glorious and powerful. Nothing in it is menial. Nothing in it is meaningless. We are rescued by the power and grace of God to live a life that honors and glorifies Him. I think the application of this text finally is this. It is the idea of hope. You can change. Believers are people who are genuinely new and yet not totally new. So what does that mean? It means at times we will struggle. What do we need to remind ourselves of? We need to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. We need to remember that God is for us. We need to remember that sometimes Christians will struggle. 1 John 1.8 says what? If we say that we're out sin, without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We need the help of God. We need the grace of God. We need His forgiveness. But what this text is saying is this. He has already changed you. Your, your identity is tied to a future place seated with Christ. 
Live out of that hope. Live out of that new identity. Don't listen to the father of lies who loves to distort and to steal our true identity. Live as redeemed children of God. Reject the lies of the evil one when when he seeks to pummel you with guilt and condemnation. Remember who you are in Christ. In Christ who said this, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you say, Pastor Tim, I am locked in those first three verses. That's my life. Here's what the Bible says. It says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, seeing their true condition, will be saved. You sense God this morning calling on your heart, drawing you to trust in Jesus Christ. I would encourage you this morning. Confess your sin to him. Trust in his saving grace. And enjoy the change in new life that only Jesus Christ can give. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word.